As I said, today is Palm Sunday, and we will trace the walk of our Lord this Thursday at our Lord's Supper service, but we continue in Paul's letter to the Romans today because we want to get to where Paul is, is going, the, the good news of God's righteousness provided by, by Christ, and that's exactly where we'll, we'll land next week. That, that's actually the prevailing purpose uh, in, in Paul writing this, this letter. He wants to teach us about about the gospel. And so he, he handed us this torch in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, right after the introduction, for, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, unto the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And and then he took us down into this dungeon of depravity. Down, down, down he's taken us to, for three chapters. And as we reached the bottom of the, the dank stone staircase, we found three cells there, each with a proverbial person locked in it. The first was the immoral man of chapter 1. This is a Gentile pagan. The Gentile pagan uh, who is without God, he is a is the person who suppresses the, the natural witness that the Lord provides him uh, in him and, and around him, and, and he exchanges the truth for a lie. He looks very much like the person that you run into in the everyday world. Uh, he has his own views about God, his own views about religion, his own views about sexuality, and his life shows it. He, he's filled with, with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and a lot of other things. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 29 says, he, he's locked away, uh, reserved for judgment in that, that first cell. He's been turned over to his own desires by, by God. The second cell contained a, a religious man in chapter 2. He, he looked very different from the, the guy that was in the, the, the first cell. The, this man looks upright and moral on the exterior. I mean, he would wear a suit in our day. He, he would be polite. He, he, he likely seems very worthy of respect. You might even find yourself at first glance when you, when you, you, you look through the bars, why is this guy um, locked up? I mean, he knows the Bible. He's even reciting it in his cell. He, he has the right religion, the right God, and the right morals. But he's there because he thought he would escape judgment and that God, uh, that God would be partial to him because of his, his morality. He thought his religious deeds would give him a better standing before the, the judgment bar, even though he did not keep that, that moral code that he knew so well himself. This man was condemned for his hypocrisy. He was also locked up under sin. And Paul has now brought us to this third and final cell in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And the man in this, in this final cell looks a little bit like the, the, both of the men in, in the other two. It looks like, they're, they're, it looks like he's related, and, and he is. But we also notice something very different about this man, and... When you look at him in his cell, you find that he's, he's bound in chains. He's held fast by them. He, he's enslaved to something. You don't want to get too close to this guy because he, he can hurt you with, with his mouth and, and also with his deeds. But what's most perplexing 
is that you, as you look at him, you can tell he both hates and, and likes the dungeon. He, he can't leave and he wouldn't leave. Paul says even if you take his chains off and open the cell door, he would remain in the prison because he loves the darkness rather than, than light. In fact, whenever, whenever you approach the door with your gospel torch, he, he turns his face away because it hurts his eyes. He, he even covers it himself so he can't see how dirty he is. And Paul says in that final cell, you will find all people before Christ, Jew or Gentile, all humanity. Maybe that man is, is you this very morning if you're outside of, of Jesus. You see, when we, well, we often compare ourselves to other people, and again, never somebody better. We, we, we always say, you know, Hitler or or the proverbial axe murderer, you know, well, at least I didn't kill someone. Paul shows us in chapter 3 that all human beings are appraised against the righteousness of the Lord. That, that's the, the comparison. And when you're placed against Him, your value is judged there. And in verse 10, a, a verse that you likely know very well, that declares the verdict from that comparison. Look, if you would, at verse 10 of Romans 3. There is none righteous, not even one. And with that statement standing at the headwaters, a list of accusations come. In verses 10 through 18, Paul launches into this thorough, evidence-based exposure of man in light of God's righteousness. You might think of it like going down into our proverbial dungeon, not with a, not with a torch, but, but, but a a beacon from a lighthouse, if that was possible. Or if you could harness the sun and bring it into the cell. You think about how bright that, that would be. And before God's righteousness, every dirty thing is exposed. Even the unintentional dust bunny sins that are in the crevices of our crooked hearts, that becomes plain before God's light. And Paul answers the question here, how many Jews and Gentiles are righteous? Never mind the homosexuals, never mind the hypocrites. How many people, human beings in general, Jew or Gentile, how many are righteous? And, and the answer comes in verse 10, none. And it comes again in verse 11, there's none. Twice in verse 11, there's none. Verse 12, there's, there's none that are righteous. Four times. The expression none is used. And the positive side is also asked, how many Jews and Gentiles, how many human beings are sinners? And that answer is found in verse 9. It's, it's all, as well as verse 12. All are sinners. Verse 19, all, the whole world, none are righteous, all are sinners. And just so you know exactly what God means by by none and all, he underlines it with not even one. And he says that twice. And when you put this passage together, uh, there, there are 12 universal indictments that God brings against all human beings that, that summarize the source of what Paul has already went over in chapter 1 and, and chapter 2. You see, Paul understands that, that, that you know already that, that you're a sinner because there's this right and wrong and conscience in you. you. You know that you've failed and done wrong things. What Paul explains here in chapter 3 is why you 
you're a sinner. He explains the source of, uh, of your sin. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, he shows us where our sins come from. All of our sinful deeds, Jew or Gentile, they're, they're sourced down inside of us in our depravity. And, and he says we're totally depraved. He shows us why, why people reject God, why they choose hell over heaven, why, why when Jesus came into his own, his own received him not, why at the moment, whenever he opens the, the door, they, they refuse the, the, the key, while why, even if you take the, the passage in Revelation out of context, why when he stands at the, at the door and knocks, no one goes to the door? No one opens it. Paul reveals where this kind of rejection comes from. Impresses the argument that he's been making since chapter 1 to a crescendo, to our real problem. You are not just guilty, we are not just guilty, we're godless. You haven't just committed sinful deeds. You're in sin's grip, and you're, you're totally unable to come to God. You're, you have an absolute hatred of His righteousness and an unalterable love of sin, even though you were made in God's image. That's how bad the fall has marred you. Verses 9 through 20 is actually laid out like a, like a divine court case. The, the charge is made in verse, in, in verse 9, all are under sin. The evidence is presented in verses 10 through 18. That's probably the easy part of this passage to see because it's probably in italics in your Bible. It's all of the Old Testament verses quoted. Then there's this brief deliberation in verse, verse 19, the purpose of all of that scripture. And then finally, the, the verdict. The whole world is guilty, and that's provided at verse 19. And, and then the, the sentencing instructions are given at, at the very end. When Paul puts all of this together. You get three declarations about the, the totality of, of men's depravity. It all comes from these three components of the trial. There's the universal charge, the undeniable evidence, and then the indisputable verdict that comes from God and from His law. And, and last time we looked at the first and we, we started the, the, the second one. Uh, we looked at the first universal charge. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Paul says, what then? Or what shall we conclude? Are, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And he brings us here to the conclusion. Paul says, here's the conclusion of what I started back in verse 18 of, of chapter 1. What shall we conclude? The conclusion is both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. He's tying it up in a nice, neat bow, although the bow is, is black. <laughs> Paul just got done outlining the blessings and the promises of the Jewish people. They possessed the oracles of God. They were given the words of God, the promises of God. They had the, they had the prophets. And, and so he asked, do they have any advantage in, in judgment then? And he answers, not at all. Privileges or not, uh, God will, will not be partial to them in judgment. And most importantly, Paul describes the, the condition of, of all human beings. Notice he doesn't say in verse 9, everyone sins. He says everyone is under sin. It means to be in bondage to something. To be enslaved, to be controlled internally, to be captive. The Bible says we're corrupted by sin. It's in us. We have Adam's DNA. 
and you can't get it out of you. And, and apart from God doing something to take that out, you're hopelessly locked up there. It doesn't deny human beings can do individual acts that are kind or, or even good deeds, as, as we would, would call them, something that measures up to what God says in His Word is a, is a good thing to do. It, it, it means, though, that we have a sin nature. It stains us. We're blind. We won't come to God. So God has to come to us. He has to initiate a change in us or we'll stay in ourselves. As we saw that in Galatians 3 and Ephesians 2 and Galatians 4 and Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, Colossians 3, Titus 3. We just went verse after verse after verse. This is not the only place this is taught in the New Testament. These are Old Testament quotes just all through Paul's writings, the depravity of man. You're in bondage, you're a slave, you're, you're these things by nature, you're dead, you're futile in your thoughts, you're alienated from God, you're, you're living by gratifying the cravings of your flesh, and you liked it, the Bible says. And then Paul provides evidence from the Old Testament scriptures to, to prove it. This is not new revelation or something from, from Christianity. This is, this is what the Old Testament teaches. So the second declaration about the totality of man's depravity is the undeniable evidence that's stacked up against mankind. Look, if you would, at verse 10. He says, as it is written in the Old Testament, it's written, stands written, stands true today, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned away. They have Together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There are 12 descriptions of the totality of, of depravity with the force of a prosecutor's argument, just hammer blow after hammer blow, evidence after, after evidence. It begins with a pattern. There's this pattern here of this universal deadness. These first six statements have to do with man's inability or desire to know, to seek, to, to, to care about God. And, and then he, he shows... What comes out of our hearts in this unjust dialogue, it's how we sin with our tongues and our speech, and then ungodly deeds, the, the evil acts toward other people, and then all of that comes from this unyielding, uncaring disposition because we have no fear of God. And all of them provide this scriptural evidence. Paul strings six Old Testament passages to, together from the Psalms, from the Proverbs, from Ecclesiastes, and from Isaiah. And he starts with Psalm 14, 1 through 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. None. Not the most virtuous, virtuous person you know or can think of. Not the greatest biblical saint in the Bible. No child before they, they sin too much. Not Paul. Not Peter. Not humble John. Not you. To be righteous means to be right with God internally, and externally, it, it means we, we match up with, with God's margins, uh, what He declares is right. It, it's what you need to get into heaven. It's a judicial and forensic declaration. But Paul says human beings don't even understand that they need that. Look at the, 
this next evidence that he lays before the judge in verse 11. There's none who understands. What do they not understand? They don't even understand that they're not righteous. And there's no one who seeks God. Paul says without Christ, people are spiritually ignorant. They're walking away from God. They're not walking toward Him. The phrase, no one understands, means to be unaware of your spiritual need. It, you just ask any person on the street. I think we said this last week. What is righteous or, or, or good? And you're likely going to get a spiritually ignorant answer. One that's going to be very far from what, what God declares. I mean, I think the most empty statements in, in, in the world begin with, well, I think, and then you know what's coming after that, sure to be stupid. Somebody said after... Um, the first service said, you know, even worse than that is the statement that says, well, I feel, right? <laughs> well, I think, I feel, God says, I know, and I declare the end from the beginning. I am the Lord. And to the extent that you agree with what God knows and what God declares, then you can be right. But, but human beings don't even know that they're wrong. That's what Paul's saying here. And there's no one even seeking the right uh, apart, uh, 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 seeking the right answer with a pure heart. No one seeks after God, Paul says. According to Romans 1, he's already went over this in detail. People take the revelation of God given, the conscience within them, the, the right and the wrong, and the, the fact that there's a creation and, a, and it's something bigger than us out there, and they suppress it. And they do that to make a God more palatable to their own liking, no matter whether they call him Jesus or not. The Bible says all the religious efforts in the systems of the world are not an attempt to reach God. They're an attempt to escape the one true and living God, not, not come to him. They exchange the truth of God for, for a lie. Show people the portrait of humanity that Paul is painting here, the average person on the street, and they'll say, well, we can't be that bad. I mean, and, and if that's what really, really what God says, well, I can't believe in a God like that who thinks I'm that way. And Paul says, you're right. You can't, you won't, apart from God's intervention. In fact, we, we turn away from God's path, not toward it. Look at how he continues here in verse 12 talking about this universal deadness. I don't even I would know a better word than that. Paul continues in verse 12, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Three more indictments are given. We, all of humanity, we as individuals and in human beings as a whole, we, we've turned away, we've become useless to God and... And, and, and not one of us does, does good. Alva J. McLean said to turn aside here is the picture of a traveler crossing the, the, the desert and, and without um, reference points, he, he gets lost. He, he gets off course. Or, or maybe like a ship that, that leaves a harbor for a faraway port and, and he turns off the navigation and, and he gets off track. The, the word means to wander. It Paul says men have wandered or deviated from the, the, the right way of God. This is the, the idea that the Bible uses. All we like sheep have gone astray. And when you hear that passage, 
We're like sheep that's gone astray. Uh, we uh, d- don't think, uh, you know, a cuddly little sheep that just kind of gets, you know, gets, gets lost. This is a stubborn, rebellious animal who won't follow the shepherd and wants to go its own way again and again and again. That's the picture of the sheep going astray. And that getting off course has rendered them unprofitable to God. That's what it says here. What does that mean? You've been rendered unprofitable. Well, the Greek is a translation of a, of a Hebrew word. Remember, these are Old Testament quotes. And, and it means milk that has turned sour. It's something that was intended to be good, and, and now it's, it's unfit. I mean, have you ever turned up a milk carton without checking, checking the date and, and took a big drink? You're not supposed to be drinking from the milk carton anyway, but at least that's what my mother told me. I mean, only, you find it sour, though. You learn pretty quickly to check the date and to make sure mom's not looking whenever you do that from the refrigerator. This example of sour milk is very vivid to me because we prayed for Sue Cook in, um, in the, the, the pastoral prayer. And the first time that I went to Nepal with, with, with her, she had me everywhere. I don't know whether she didn't think that I was going to come back, but I mean, it was slammed. Uh, going, teaching multiple, multiple times a day and one of the stops that we, we made was, was at a home of an evangelist that we had bought a cow for. and It was to help his family, uh, you know, help support his family with the milk. And so the, the, when the cow was supposed, the way that it works, when the cow had the first calf, then they would give that calf to the mission, and then they would give that, that calf to another, you know, brother in, in need. And this cow had recently had a calf, and this brother knows we're in the country and, and wants me to come by and, and see it. And so we did in the midst of our schedule. And there's really no way to describe the scene to you. I mean, I don't know what comes to your mind, what pictures. This is not in the city. This is like in the hinterlands. I mean, it's a raw block building home with, with open windows in the jungle, small. The cow is in the back of the house with the people. This guy's walking barefooted through the manure to show me the, the calf, to get the calf out from behind the, the cow. And, and when we'd seen it and, and prayed with them, rejoicing, his wife, who wasn't with us at the moment, brings out a blessing for us. And it was milk from the cow that had been sitting out for days because they have no refrigeration. And it was summer, about 90 degrees. And she poured it out of a large, open metal pot. And I'm telling you, I'm not exaggerating, I could see lumps in the milk. I mean, it was like the bacteria was doing the high dive jump off the side of the cup, and just you can just see it in there. And I have a week of preaching multiple times a day and traveling everywhere to get there. And let's just say there are no rest areas in the jungle, okay? And they're humbly handing it to us as in honor, as a blessing for this cow, saying something in their language. Now you want to know what I did, don't you? Yeah. I prayed hard, <laughs> and I thanked God for this brother and his family. And whenever I said amen, I put the cup to my lips. 
And the Nepali brother that was taking us around took my milk and drank it down, chunks and all. Now that is a substitutionary atonement, I'm here to tell you. And I can confirm God answers prayer, even in those, even in those moments. And Paul says that's what you and I were like. That's what we're like before God. You're not just a carton out of date, you're... Your curdled milk. To him, our lives are, are like pouring the water off of spoiled cottage cheese over a, a bowl of Lucky Charms. It's just disgusting. Notice this wasn't how God created us. Look, look at verse 12. All have turned away. They have be, together become worthless. They, they become unprofitable. We have rendered ourselves the opposite of creation. You say human beings are made, created by God with His image. That's right. But, but we have rendered ourselves in this condition. We have no moral use to God because we're under sin. We have no intellectual use to God. None understand. We, we don't seek Him when He calls. When He gives us moral direction, we go the opposite way. I mean, Joel James says we have reduced ourselves to as unusable as last year's calendar. It's only good to start fires with whenever January 1st turns around. He said it's like baking a loaf of bread and forgetting to put salt in it or, or baking cookies and forgetting to put, put the sugar in. And, and you've got one pan of cookies in the oven and you've got, he said you've got three more lined up on the counter like, like airplanes waiting to go on the runway, and you realize there's no sugar in any of them. What do you do with the ones on the counter? Do you go ahead and bake them? No, they're worthless. Just throw them away. What good are they? And that's the way sinners are to God how we've rendered ourselves to the Lord. Since we refuse to bring God glory, we're only fit to bring Him glory through putting His justice on display in the fire. You say, that seems so harsh. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I wouldn't hurt anyone. God says you're not even close. Look at how He ends verse 12. There is no one who does good, not even one. Again, Paul's not talking about individual deeds. You can do good things. You can do things that fit into the categories of a good deed. You can say a kind word. He's saying here that when God evaluates the whole of a person's life, there's none that receive the verdict good. None act out of righteousness. And then he says, let me prove it to you. Look at how we talk, how we act, and look at the focus. Verse 13. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And then he turns to their feet. He starts with speech as the universal evidence of, of our guilt. He says the speech of sinners is... It's like the odor of an open grave. You thought my milk example was disgusting. This is really disgusting. The stench is, that comes out of a sinner's mouth. I can still remember my seventh grade economic teacher's bad breath. That's 40 some years. I don't know how. Every time I asked him a question, he leaned in over my paper. You're there. 
I mean, that's not the kind of halitosis that Paul is talking about here. No tic-tac can take this kind of, of bad breath away. He says the, our speech, what, what, what comes out of our hearts, it puts a waff of death in the air because a lot of our words harm and kill. In, in Paul's day, a, a sepulcher, a grave, a person was buried. They wouldn't be put underground with lots of dirt on it. They'd be put in a limestone cave in a, in a hole with no dirt. And so the body was left inside to, to decay in a in the dark. They put a stone in front of it to keep the animals out, but, but also to keep the stink in and, and also keep people from, from falling into it. And Paul says our mouths are like a, a grave, a sepulcher that's been left open. It, it lets all the stink out and all the stink that's in our hearts. And it's also a dangerous place for people to, to pass in front of. They, they can fall in and, and they, can, they can get hurt. I mean, have you ever been walking down the road, um, maybe taking a walk with, with your spouse or whoever, and, and there's a deer carcass over in the weeds and you don't know it and the wind's blowing in an opposite direction, and you get and all of a sudden, wham! I mean, you just get waylaid by, by the smell of a dead animal. That's how God describes the way human beings speak to each other nice and flowery and it's good and it's kind and all of a sudden, wham! Not every word that comes out. He's talking about the whole of human conversation. He says it's full of cursing, cursing of God, cursing of others. Kent Hughes says sometimes it's filthy, sometimes it's deceiving, and sometimes it's as deadly as a cobra bite. Paul just specifically here says we have deceitful tongues. Poisonous lips and cursing mouths. I mean, think about it. We hardly go through a day. Maybe you're better than the average. Okay, a week. We hardly go through a week without grumbling about our circumstances in, in, in some way. In reality, we're grumbling about God who ordains our steps. We talk about others behind their backs. I mean, did you see what she had on? And you even do that whenever you leave church. <laughs> Can you believe he said that? We get angry and we hurl insults at each other because someone dared make our lives hard. I mean, we call people idiots whenever they, they cut us off on the road. We lie. We, we leave things out to, to keep us out of trouble. We add things in to make us look good. We boast and we take credit with our tongues for, for things that we have no business taking credit for. And when someone crosses us, Lord, have mercy. I mean, we hurt, we destroy, we set things on fire with our tongues. We, we transgress. I mean, James is right. This, this little muscle that's behind your, your teeth un uh, can unleash a world of evil. We break vows to others and God. We promise God, I'll, I'll, I'll just get me out of this. I'll never do it again. Only to find the next Friday night doing the exact same thing. I notice Paul says that, that our mouths are full of this. Verse 14. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. You think God's just going to overlook that? And it's not just what we say. Look at our deeds. Here are ungodly deeds. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace 
they do not know. I was thinking as I uh, prepared, my mind went back to a young lady whenever I was in middle school or in junior high that I said some extremely unkind things to. I liked her, and um, I didn't think she liked me, you know, junior high silliness. And so in order to, to cover that, I, I just whittled her down with my tongue. And I was thinking about, I remember she was just speechless, and she said, why, why do you have to be so cruel? And wept. I was thinking as I prepared, I have no idea where that, that girl is today, but, but I would love to, to go back and ask her forgiveness. Things that I've said, things that I've done, where my feet have taken me. Ruin and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they do not know. He says we have swift feet. We, uh, we bring destruction and misery wherever we go. And we do not know the way of peace. You only have to look at the history of the world to know that's true. Maybe you look at the history of your life, what's, what's in the wake of your life, broken stuff. Men are quick to harm, slow to repent. Whenever... Wherever a man walks, there's destruction and misery. Um, one commentator quoted Will Durant, so this is Will Durant's quote. He, he, he wrote in, a, in his Lessons from History, here's what he said. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. 268 out of 3,421 years, there's no record of war. Paul says men love violence. Now there's nothing that they can do to change it. Notice it says the way of peace they have not known. They didn't know how to be peaceful apart from God. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, He's not saying that, that that's just stuff going to happen at the last day. He's saying it's going to continue the way that it's been since the garden. There have been wars and murder since the garden, and it's going to continue. But one day, one day, the Prince of Peace is going to come, and He's going to reign, and there's going to be no war. And no war in your heart either. And you say, well, well, I haven't physically hurt anyone. And you might not. But God says that violence is in your heart. And when somebody makes you angry, you, you can whittle them down in your head or with your tongue. And you want to kill them inside. And that didn't start whenever you were an adult. Just watch two children fighting over a toy. When one doesn't get its way, the other one punches them in the face, throws the toy at him, and, and it's in them, it's not taught. Rick Holland said, revenge like that itself shows people know that there's a right or, or a wrong, and when somebody wrongs you, you demand justice. When you wrong somebody, you demand mercy. And so Paul rounds out this list by telling us the reason for it all. Look, look, for verse eight, look at verse 18, the last quoted part here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is capstone to this prosecutor's 
evidence. And every time I read those words, there's no fear of God before their eyes, I can remember a vivid illustration as an unsaved man with some friends out on a, out on a river. We were on a float trip. We were all in inner tubes together. And a powerful storm came up while we were out there with lightning. Floating in those inner tubes, uh, everybody was, was trying to get out of the water. It got so bad. I mean, it's the kind of lightning that just crashes, and it sounds like the, you know, the sky is falling. And a marine buddy of mine was the first one out of the, out of the water. He had been struck by lightning in Camp Lejeune in basic training, and he was scared to death of lightning. I, I, I mean, even though he was a big Marine, I guess I would be too if I got struck by lightning. I don't know. But there was one guy that stayed out in the middle of the water, and lightning struck all around, and it was, it was raining, and everybody was saying, Get out of the water. What are you doing? Get out of the water. Are you crazy? And he looked up in the sky, and he used his finger, and not to point, and he said, God, I dare you to strike me with a beer in his other hand and a few other things I can't repeat. Now let me just tell you the difference between God and me. If I was God, I would have used that puny little bug's finger as a lightning rod. And I would have put the bolt on a repeating circle. He would still be floating in that inner tube with the current flowing through him. Is that what Paul means here by there's no fear of God before their eyes? Well, well, surely that. That's pretty obvious, right? But what does it look like when human beings, when the whole human race doesn't fear, fear God? It can be something much less braggadocious. I mean, when we think fear, we, we think tremble or terror. But when it's used for God, it, it means right thinking. It means reverence toward Him, which, which is proper because He's God. It's, it's, it's a proper response to the fact that there is a God and, and He's there. That's why Proverbs says the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you think rightly about God, everything else in your life follows suit. When you think wrongly about God, the way of a transgressor is hard. It just leaves junk in your, in, in your way. And men do curse God because they don't fear Him, but, but they also live as, as if He doesn't exist. And that's no fear of God as well. Lacking fear for God can be indifference as well as defiance. And, and people live as if God doesn't exist. They live as if He's irrelevant, even though He's there. And, and notice Paul makes one final reference to the body here. He talks about the tongue and the feet, but, but he says there's, it's the eyes now. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The eyes represent what we focus on. And he means there's no thought of God be, before their eyes. He's not their focus at all. They, they dismiss His Word. They neglect His church. They trample His Son. They never worry about the, the judgment that, that's coming. That's what he means by no fear of God. It's indifferent. James Montgomery Boyce said the irony of all of this is the state of human beings and our sin is that we fear everything other than what we should. <laughs> the pagan in the distant jungle fears the rivers, the rocks, and the trees. He fears the sky, the thunder, the spirits of the night. 
The civilized pagan fears the future, hostile neighbors, disease, technological breakdown, and above all, everyone fears death. And any and all of those things will pass away, but God will remain and you do not fear Him. And if that's you, God's saying, wake up. Because the trial's almost over. The verdict's already been given. And here it is. It's the indisputable verdict. Now with the prosecution finishing its case, it's time for a verdict. The deliberation, the consideration of the evidence, and the verdict in verse 19, and then the, some sentencing instructions in verse 20. Look at you verse 19. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So verse 19, the closing arguments. And notice God speaks. Two times He speaks in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks. God doesn't speak by dreams or audible voices. He speaks through His Word. He speaks through His law. Whenever Paul uses the term law here, it's in the broadest sense. It's the the entire Old Testament. In fact, there's no quotation taken here in this list uh, from the the Pentateuch or the the books of Moses. It's Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and, and Psalms. And he says God spoke to the Jew first. He spoke to those under the law. And because he did, his words apply to everyone else so that the whole world might become guilty and their mouths stop. You mean you see what Paul's arguing here? He's arguing from the greater to to the lesser. He's saying if the Jews, God's chosen people... If they can't escape the verdict of the law, then no one can, and and surely not the world without even the promise of God's favor. Colin Cruz said, Once Jewish mouths are silenced and Jewish people are seen to be no better than Gentiles, then the whole world stands accountable before God. That's the idea here. And notice when God speaks, it's a one-sided conversation. Look at verse 19. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. God speaks in His Word, and everyone is silent. Silence in the courtroom. It means their mouths are shut or closed. It's it's like a muzzle. In the Jewish culture, to put your hand over your mouth, Job, I lay my hand over my mouth, To stop one's mouth by by placing your hand over it meant that you had no defense. Have no defense. Doug Moose said even in the courtroom they would silence people, which is what they were trying to do to, to the Lord in John 18. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered said, If I've spoken wrongly, then testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Why do you try to silence me when, when I'm giving a, a truthful answer? But God speaks about our lives and no one has a case. No one will argue. No one will say, yeah, but. No one will say, well, would you consider this? There'll be silence in the courtroom. I mean, think about it. 
when you stand before the creator of all things, do you really think you're going to argue with him? That you're going to give some defense? That you're going to present some case that says you were not as bad as he says that you actually are? Now you won't speak. You'll be rendered without words. You'll be muzzled. And that's the purpose of all this condemnation. So that the whole world, the mouth of the whole world would be stopped. All mouth, all flesh are to be silenced by God's word here. And without defense, there's only verdict. The verdict of guilty, they're accountable. And then the sentencing instructions come. Look at verse 20. He says, because, notice an explanation, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I mean, Paul adds the reason why no one can be justified by God, uh, or justified in God's sight by, by the works of the law. It's, it's because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through listening to verse, uh, you know, um, uh, 10 through verse 18, you don't become righteous, you realize what you are. That's what he's saying. The purpose of the law is to make people conscious of their sin. And they need to be conscious because there's none that understands, there's none that seeks after God, and they're all going in the opposite direction. It was never intended to save. I mean, you realize that when God gives us this kind of portrait, He's not being mean or cruel. He's showing you your real problem because you're unaware out of your spiritual ignorance. I mean, Paul says the law is like a radiologist or, or an x-ray that shows the, the broken bone. It's not an orthopedist. The law is like a set of bathroom scales that tells your weight. It's not a diet program. It doesn't fix the problem. It's a diagnostic. It's not a deliverer. F.F. Bruce said the law brings out men and women's sinfulness but does nothing to cure it. Therefore, no one will be declared judicially, forensically, righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 7, 7. He'll get there and explain it all to us. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This is the works of the law, first of eight occurrences in Paul's writings. And it means obedience to the law, using the law to amass some merit that would ensure a favorable verdict from God. Paul's message is apart from grace and, and God making the way of salvation. All the law can lead you to do is acknowledge and confess you're morally bankrupt. It's like a portrait of a perfectly beautiful person. And as you compare yourself... You see all your flaws. And that's the conclusion of the whole matter. In light of who we are, not compared to somebody else, but measured by God's standard, the whole world is guilty before God and silent. And this is a declaration of what's going to happen one day in the future when you stand before the great white throne judgment. But I don't want you to miss the grace in the fact that he's telling us this now. There's a reason 
that God has given His law in Romans 3, 9 through 20 to silence you. There's the reason that He has beat you into the dirt for the last three chapters. And there's no way that you, you, can, you can get out of it. He's rendered you silence so that you might be able to hear. Most people are busy, too busy, making excuses and pontificating about God themselves and they don't actually listen to what he says. And so Paul renders a silent, God renders a silent so you can find hope. And so in his mercy of silencing us, we're ready to hear. And look at verse 21. This is what he wants you to hear. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, the declaration of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You can't justify yourself, but God can declare you righteous by giving you the record of His Son. And how do you get that record? By believing. William Cowper, as you would call him, or Cooper, properly pronounced, wrote a song that you know well. He knew and understood Romans 3, 9 through 20. And he also knew what Paul wrote in verse 21 and beyond. And he wrote a song, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Do you know, you remember the second stanza of that song? The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Would you like to be clean? Jesus Christ can make you clean. He's made me clean, even though I'm all this. And if you'll come to him, He's not going to remind you of this. He's going to put a ring on your finger and a robe on your back. He's going to say, enter into the joy of my kingdom. Father, we thank you that you make a way for us to be clean. But before we'll ever come to that fountain, we have to see how vile we are. And I pray that every Christian this morning would rejoice in the fact of what they were and what you've made them. You've made us all in Jesus. And I pray for anyone who has yet to, to wash their hands, wash their heart, and wash their eyes, and wash their mind, and wash their, their whole body from the sins that they have committed, to wash their souls. I pray today that they would come to Jesus and say, Lord... Everything you say is right. I am all those things and more. I repent and I believe. I want to be clean, 
Wash me clean. And I pray that you would wash them just as you promised. In Jesus' name, amen.